Thank you, guys. Well, do me a favor, track down a Bible. Uh, We're in Proverbs chapter 3 now. Proverbs chapter 3. And uh, in our Bibles here, it's on page 543. You can grab a Bible. There are Bibles in the racks in front of you, in the chairs in front of you, and you should be able to find Proverbs chapter 3 on page 543. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll pray, and we will get to work. This is Proverbs 3, starting in verse 1. It reads like this. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord loves, sorry, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, as we've opened it together that you by that word through your spirit would speak to us We're praying, God, that we would hear your voice loud and clear and that you would make us a wise people. And we pray, Lord, for the things that are going to be revealed here that you require from us, Lord. We ask that you would grant us faith and humility so that we might depend on you for the strength that you supply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The principle here is a surprising one. And uh, as I was working on it this week, I was like, huh, it really is here. The Bible, start to finish, is a book that's designed to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, when the Apostle Paul talks about it, when he's writing to his protege, Timothy, to a young pastor, he says, uh, you know the scriptures that are able to make you wise uh, unto faith in, in Jesus Christ. He says the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, are designed to bring you to faith in Christ. And so even in the book of Proverbs, which if you're familiar with Proverbs, they're very practical. They deal with just kind of nitty gritty things about life, like relationships and sexuality and anger and forgiveness and and all these different kind of day-to-day sorts of things. But then you get into the the book of Proverbs itself, and here in chapter 3, it gives us this idea that the way that you would even become wise is through depending on what God has done. So it's not just knowing the stuff you need to do and then getting busy doing those things. It really comes down to this dependence on the promises of God and our willingness to place our faith and what God has accomplished. So that's what we're going to find here. I'll spend the lion's share of our time in the middle section explaining that. But what we find then is three headings that I want to give to you. The Father's invitation, he's inviting us into this way of life in verses 1 to 4. The Father's explanation in verses 5 to 10 of what does that look like exactly. And then finally, the Lord's participation, the Lord's willingness to make sure that that principle comes true in our hearts. So let's get to work. The Father's invitation 
comes to us in verses 1 to 4, and it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. The father, father, the father wisdom, if you will, or this you know, elderly figure who's instructing his child is inviting us again to listen to wisdom. Now, at this point in our series, we, we've been at it for weeks now, and it's going to start to feel redundant. We're going to start hearing this and go, okay, the father keeps saying the same sort of thing over and over again. We got it. I was here a couple weeks ago. Corey, I heard you say this. I heard Phil say this. Okay, one of the things that I was thinking about this week is the importance of being reminded. If the Bible has to repeatedly say similar things over and over and over again, here's one of the things it says about us, we forget. We need reminding. We need to be told over and over and over again there's a way of wisdom, and we have to be people who are willing to embrace that. At my house right now, we're rereading Little Pilgrim's Big Journey, which is a kid's version of Pilgrim's Progress. And so the kids are on their way to the uh, heavenly city, and they've got different individuals who are helping them along the way, great heart and helpful and evangelists and these other people. And it's interesting because uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is really about Christians on their way to God. And so the kids now in Little Pilgrim's Big Journey are on their way to his city, and these people keep reminding them there's a way, there's a path, it's very, very important that you stay on this path no matter what, no matter how hard it might look, no matter how enticing some of these diversions may appear to be to you, stay on this path. So you're reading it and you're hearing this repeatedly told to them, and then what do they do? They come up with excuses for why they should leave the path. They go, oh, I think we would be better served if we would just kind of venture off in this direction. And as a reader, you're like, are you kidding me? They literally just told you, stay on this path. And like two sentences later, you're saying, hey, let's run off into this forest. I think that'll be better. And so as a reader, you're kind of like, what are they doing? This is silly. And then you start to think about it and go, oh, this is, this is a miniature of every Christian I've ever met, right? This is what we do. God says, I've got a way, and this is my way, and I want you to stay on it. And this is the way to experience wisdom and joy and all these different things and we often kind of get, we're on the path and we look and we go, oh, I kind of want to go this way. I think it'd be better to, to venture off in this direction. But again, God is reminding us of the importance of walking in the way of wisdom. So my son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. Verse 2 tells us there's a benefit to living this way, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity to walk and the way of wisdom is to walk in the way of blessing. And God is telling us that here, that to follow God's commandments is good. And this is a little bit tricky because there's a, a false teaching that latches on to verses like this and says, look, if you follow God, life is good. It says it right here, peace, prosperity, blessing. And, and it begins to get applied to all manner of life. So if you follow God, if you follow his commandments, then you won't have marital conflict. If you follow God's commandments, you won't have financial stress. If you follow God's commandments, you won't experience relational hardship at work. If you follow God's commandments, you will experience his blessing and his provision. And, and that's, an, that's an overstepping of what the Bible actually says. This does say you will experience prosperity and peace. It doesn't tell us when. 
And in fact, I think that the Bible, and especially the book of Proverbs, it, it leads us to the point where we have to come to the grips, come to grips with some of the promises that God makes to us don't come true immediately. Phil said it during his sermon. The book of Proverbs brings us to the brink of eternity, where we have to recognize there in a fallen world with difficulties, sometimes what God promises to us are not going to arrive until the Lord returns or we go to him in glory. Some of the good things God is holding for us, and we will receive them. God is not lying to us. He's not leading us on. He's not tricking us. He will give us these things, but we have to patiently await their fulfillment. So we're not talking about prosperity theology here. In fact, look at verses 11 and 12, which we'll get to in due time, but they say, God will correct you. That's not a pleasant experience. God will rebuke you, and that will feel off-putting. But this is saying, if you listen to the voice of God, and if you follow his commandments, they actually work. They actually work. In fact, Scott Hafeman, a New Testament scholar, he puts it like this. He says, the commands of God are really promises in disguise. When God is telling us what we should be doing, those are actually promises of God in disguise. And often we kind of, when, when we hear the commands of God, we go, oh, that sounds, that sounds restrictive, that sounds limiting, that sounds like you're trying to impose something on me. I'm not sure I want to do that. But what if God, the one who made everything and understands how it actually works, he's not, he's not trying to force us to do things that aren't in our benefit. He's actually telling us, look, if you do this, this is how I designed the world. This will actually go better for you. That's what God is saying here. These, these are the commands of God that we're being invited into, but we can imagine them as the, as the promises of God in disguise. So the Father says, do not forget this teaching. Keep my commands in your heart. If you do this, you will experience blessing and provision, peace and prosperity. Then he tells us, keep these things on you. Look at verse 3. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. He's saying, the commands of God need to be onboarded into your life. This is important. We're not just talking about come to church hear it taught, walk away and forget about that. It's saying, design your life in such a way that the commands of God are on your persons, that you have these things with you because you understand how significant and important they are. Let these things never leave you. Bind them to, your, to, to yourself, to your person. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So we believe that the Bible is important. That's why I talk about personal devotions. I encourage people to read the Bible on their own. As a church, we have designed some of the things that we do with this conviction that you need this to become a part of your life. And so the way we do church, you could say, Tor, why do we always preach through books of the Bible? And why do you read the Bible? I know how to read. I could do that at home. I come to church and you take about a couple minutes every week and you just read and that's boring. I could, I could do that on my own time. Why do we do it that way? Why don't we do things that are more attractional, that, that are more appealing to more people? And the conviction is, the reason why is, we need the commands of God to be onboarded into our lives. We should design church then to reflect that conviction so that you're hearing portions of Scripture regularly, that you're applying these things, 
These things are very, very important. Look at verse 4. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. To live according to this invitation results in favor. The Lord himself, when he was an adolescent, it, it describes it like this. He was growing in wisdom and stature. It's quoting, alluding this. It's saying, when Jesus was a teen, this was what was happening with him. He was growing in wisdom and in physical stature in favor with God and man. It's what the Lord himself was doing. So the invitation is for us. Come, walk in the way of wisdom. Find these things to your life. Secondly, we find this explanation in verses 5 to 10. Here's what it would look like. This is the surprising part. This is the part that says, if you're going to walk in the way of wisdom, here's what it means exactly. It's going to be depending on God for what he supplies. It's going to be an act of faith. It's not just, hey, we're going to study Proverbs, we're going to get all these bullet points, and then we're going to just kind of document those and go try to live those out. No, no, no. The way that this works is, it says, if you want to walk in the way of wisdom, it will require you to trust what God has accomplished for you. It will require that you learn to depend by faith and what God has done for you. The New Testament picks this idea up, and, and Paul gives it a, a phrase. I hope this phrase just kind of lands on you and you keep it with you. Paul calls it this. He says, there is this thing that's called obedience of faith, meaning people are living according to the commands of God, but they're doing it with a posture of faith. So don't divorce the two and go, well, I just depend on God. I don't do anything. No, no, no. You do things, but you do those things in faith. So he calls it obedience of faith, and he writes like this in, in Romans. He says, there is a righteousness. There is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. This is Romans chapter 3. And he said, Paul puts it like this. He says, I've read my Bible before. There's this righteousness that the law, the prophets, the writings, they were all moving us to this righteousness by faith. They were all designed to lead us here. This is what Moses was talking about. This is what the law is intended to do. This is what the writings of Proverbs and other places, this is what it's all designed to do. It's designed to bring us to faith in Christ, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Here it is in our text. Here's what it says. Trust God. Look at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. This is the most famous section in all of Proverbs. It's the most quoted two verses in the whole book but it's reminding us of how the book works. It's telling us if you want to walk in wisdom, it's going to require from you that you would express faith in what God has done. Not yourself, not your efforts, not your own record of good doing, not in your strength, not in your righteousness, but in what he alone can provide. Trust in his understanding, not yours. Follow his ways, not yours. Depend on his wisdom, not yours. Give, give money that is his money, not yours. It's through and through. This whole section is saying, learn to have faith in God. In all your ways, submit to him. The decision-making process, which is something that we all go through, and this week you're going to have choices that you need to make. And what we have to do as Christians is be willing to say, I'm bringing this before God. 
And what he wants me to do is the path that I'm going to take. Not what I want to do. My preference might be different than what God is actually demanding from me, but I'm going to submit my ways to him. And I'm going to trust that even if he calls me to go in a direction that I'm not that excited about, he will make that path straight. I'm going to submit to him. I'm also going to acknowledge that my wisdom is very limited. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes. What I think is right may in fact be wrong. That's a surprising thing to say. If you've ever been in a conflict before, let's say you go to work this week and there are people that you're having a tough time with, what are you doing in your head? You're right, they're wrong. And when you go to communicate with them, that's the problem. You have to get them to recognize they're wrong, but you're right. So they're, they're saying things to you and you're going, these people have no idea. And you're crafting in your head the reason why you are so wise and they are being so foolish. This is saying, listen, do not be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you know everything about everything. Don't imagine that you, you have some corner on God's wisdom. Acknowledge that you might need God to speak into your experience to clarify things. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Trust that God can give you what you need. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will result in blessing. So if you learn to depend on God by faith, it results in health. Look at verse 8. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. To follow the Lord's ways is, in, in the words of one commentator, it's therapeutic. It has a healing property to it. Now I'm going to say a couple things just to clarify before I make this point. One of the things that I really believe is that we all need counseling. Every person I've ever met, you, you need other people speaking into your life. We, we all need counseling. We need pastoral counseling. We need the counsel of, of wise friends. We need professional counseling. In fact, one of, the, one of the guys that I really admire, he's a pastor, he says it like this, we don't put anyone in church leadership who doesn't have a counselor. Because if we expect that you're going to have checkups from all these other people, you're going to have a financial advisor auditing your stuff every year, an annual meeting with them. If you're going to do that, that's important. We also expect that people are going to get a physical checkup on, on a regular routine, that their bodies are going to be examined by a physician. That's something that's normal. But then he says, why wouldn't we also want to make sure that people are emotionally healthy, mentally healthy? So he's, he, this is Pastor Copeland, he's in, he's in Rockford, but he says, we don't put anyone in a leadership position who doesn't, who doesn't pursue counseling. Um, but here's what this text is saying. This is interesting. It's saying that following God can fix an awful lot. It's actually saying that to follow the commands of God has a therapeutic value to, to it. It will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. A lot of us are walking through the wreckage of our lives and we're going, man, what a mess this is. And God is saying, begin to follow me. Begin to submit your ways to my ways, the Lord would say, and you will see healing and restoration. And I'm not trying to be naive or overly simplistic, but I do think God is inviting us to, to walk in a way that actually works and can bring repair and healing to the brokenness in our lives. So we're to depend on him in all these different ways, and we experience blessing in all these ways. We're also to depend on him 
with our resources. Look at verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crop. It's fascinating. I wrestled with it at first because I was like, what's the connection here? How do we go from depending on God and then all of a sudden we're talking about resources and giving some away? And, and I think the point is God is saying, I want your dependence to be evident in every way, including how you manage resources. And in fact, as you think about budgeting and you go, okay, I got all of this stuff and I'm going to set a budget. I'm going to determine how this money is going to be allocated. I'm not going to let it choose for itself. I'm going to make choices here. And the Bible is saying, depend on God with your resources by taking your first fruits, a portion of what you have and the best portion of it, and giving that over to God as an expression of faith in him. That sounds silly, okay? If you're not a Christian, that sounds weird. If you are a Christian, that sounds very smart. Because what you're saying is, this stuff that I have is not entirely mine. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, even my ability to produce wealth has been given me by God himself. Everything that I have belongs to him ultimately. So I'm going to take a portion of my resources and straight away I'm going to give some of that to the advancement of God's kingdom. That is me depending on God financially, trusting that he knows best and showing that with this real-time experience of giving. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to the overflow and your vats will brim over with new wine. It's telling us that it actually does work, that to trust God actually works financially as well. So overall, this whole section here is saying, if you want to be wise, learn to depend on God. Be okay with relying on his strength. Be okay with being weak and needy. The Christian way is not us like putting a cape on and puffing our chests out and going, look at us, we're doing so, such a great job. Look at our church, we're doing such a killer job of reaching our community. No, the way of Christianity is to acknowledge our neediness and to depend on God for what he alone can supply. When the Apostle Paul grabbed hold of this concept, he applied it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 1 to 4, really. And he writes a letter to the church and he says, this is the way of Christianity. And this is wisdom. The world will give you all these counterfeit versions of wisdom, but true wisdom is dependence upon God. And he says, listen, I get it. Not everyone will accept that. In fact, the way that the worldview is kind of rigged up is most people will look at Christianity and they will say, that sounds silly. To rely on somebody who goes to a cross and dies, and you're saying he's your king and he's victorious, that's foolish. And so Paul is saying, that might sound foolish to people, but if you understand what really happened, that's power. That's wisdom. I'm going to show it to you. We'll put a couple verses up on the screen behind me. But Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You might look at that and go, that sounds ridiculous that you're going to follow somebody who would go to a cross and die. And he says, but to those of us that know better, that's power. That is the saving work of God. Then he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. That's God speaking, saying, the world might tell you to do it on your own, to go the way of Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. I put my stamp on it. 
I did what I wanted to do. I took, took my life captive and I made something of it. And the Bible says, no, trust in Christ. Depend on him. Rely on him. And it will prove to be true wisdom. And in fact, that's the point that Paul goes on to make. He says, this, all this wisdom talk, it culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done. In fact, in, in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it puts it like this. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Those, those of you that are saved are in Christ, and here's what he has become for us. He has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus is wisdom itself. And the way to receive that wisdom is faith in him. He becomes for us wisdom itself. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So then, what do we boast in? What do we celebrate? What do we get excited about? We get excited about him. That's what verse 31 says in that paragraph. It says, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The thing that we get excited about is not, hey, we studied Proverbs. We're wise people. No, we say, we studied Proverbs and we found Christ. And he's our boast. And he's what we celebrate. And we, we recognize he is wisdom. And we rely on him for any wisdom that we might have. Well, finally, the third thing we find here then is the Lord's participation in this. So we're, we've experienced an invitation. There's been an explanation of dependence upon him. And finally, this participation of the Lord himself in verses 11 and 12. And here's what it's saying. God loves you so much that he wants you to get this. And in fact, he loves you enough to correct you. One of the things that we find out is we are not very wise people. And we need an awful lot of help. And God says, I love you enough to do something about that. Look at verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. My son, the Lord is going to correct you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to tell you some, some things about you that are unpleasant. Don't despise that. Don't, don't get upset when he rebukes you recognize that this is God's work of participating in you becoming a dependent person. He is working this idea of faith into your soul, and often the brokenness of life is one of the instruments that he can wield for your good. C.S. Lewis, in his little, little book, The Problem of Pain, he puts it like this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. A lot of us are cruising through life self-reliant, building our own empire, building our own kingdom without much reference to God. God might be peppered in. I'll go on Sunday. I'll do that. I'll do a couple things here and there. But really, this is my kingdom. This is my salvation project. I'm excited about it. It's got my name all over it. But God says, I love you too much to let you do that. That will not work. And so life begins to fall apart, and God begins using that to awaken you to your need for him. And that's an expression of his love. Look at verse 12. It is because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. It's proof that he cares for you. That's what Hebrews 12 says. It quotes these two verses, and it says, this is evidence that God really does care for you. 
The, the crazy thing is we actually flip it around. We, we, come up to, we come up with the exact opposite conclusion. When life doesn't go the way we want, we think, God must hate my guts. He must, he must not care about me. If he really cared about me, he would make this all better. And the Bible actually says, no, no, no. That it looks and feels like this is proof of God's love. He disciplines every child that belongs to him. In fact, that's what the writer to the Hebrews says. He, he goes on to put it like this. If you've not experienced his correction, that's concerning. You might not be a legitimate child of his. But that your life often looks and feels like this is proof that God really does care for you. That message, what I just said, sounds absurd unless you're a Christian. What I just said, if you, if you are cruising through life and you go, I'm going to follow a God and he's going to correct me and he's going to discipline me, that sounds absurd. But that is the good news of the gospel. God can take pain and suffering and difficulty and he can repurpose it for glory. That's how great God is and that's how much he loves you. C.S. Lewis again, he says, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. Here's what Lewis is pointing to. He's saying, often what we do is we say, God, could you please just leave me alone for a little bit? This is not going well, and I'd like for you to either fix it or just leave me be. And what Lewis is saying, when you do that, you're not requesting that God love you better. You're actually asking God to withhold his love from you. When we go through these hardships, God can wield them for his glory and your good. Many of us in this season of life, we're going through it. We've got so many individuals right now with health concerns that are happening presently. And we've got so many people who are going through the wreckage of failed marriages or difficult relationships or estranged children or all these different things. And in all of that, I want to say to you, God is at work, and he is making all things new. And in this moment, as painful as it is and as hard to imagine as it might be, God really, really, really does love you. And he is inviting you to receive that love, to recognize that his corrective work is for your good, that he wastes no material. He, he leverages all of these things for our good. The writer of the Hebrews puts it like this. He says, this is even the case for the Lord himself. I'm going to end here in just a moment. But in Hebrews chapter 2, it reads like this. We see the Lord crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We look to the Lord who is willing to suffer and die at Calvary. And then here's what the comment, the comment on it is in verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom, through, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. The Lord was willing to go through the difficulties of Calvary so that we might experience salvation. So when we go through difficulties, here's, here's something I want you to know. Not only does God love you, but you also have solidarity with Christ himself, the one who is crushed and pierced for you. And you are joining him in that glory of suffering. And he is making you into this beautiful image of himself. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're asking that you would help us to become dependent people.
that we would look away from our own efforts and toward the finished work of Christ, that we would boast in him alone for what he has accomplished on our behalf. We're grateful, Lord, for that saving work, his willingness to suffer and die in our place. So, Lord, I pray for everyone who can hear my voice that we would each, all of us, Lord, each and every one of us, that we would place our faith in Christ for salvation. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in this way of wisdom, which is an ongoing dependence on you for your strength and for your provision. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to display Christ to a watching world for his glory. We pray in his name. Amen.